Um, sometimes in life, we just get these really crisp, clear reminders that make us really thankful that we're not carried along by the same things that the world is. Uh, one of those Monday night, right? So the world tends to be looking to uh, the next big thing, the next exciting thing, the next newsworthy thing. And I was informed of what that thing was on Monday night as I was sitting at an evangelistic Bible study with some high school and college students. And they said, Thomas, there's a spaceship that's going to come back into our atmosphere like 920. We've got to be done so we can go out and watch it. And I was like, okay, great. So we wrap up uh, Bible study. We go outside, and I stand in my buddy's yard looking southwest for like 40 minutes. And I, I haven't seen this spaceship yet, right? Like, that's so disappointing. Like, if that's the next big thing, if that's all you've got to offer us, I'm not interested because I didn't see the spaceship, and I stayed up way past my bedtime. Uh, I'm thankful that we're not looking for the next big thing. We're looking for the last big thing. And, and the last big thing is really the essence of what I think Psalm 110 is about. So let's go ahead and read the text. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we come to this deep, rich text, uh, I pray for your spirit to be at work in me and in my hearers so that we see uh, what you've stored up for us here and only what you've stored up for us here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as I, as I think about preaching, one of my, one of my biggest pet peeves uh, has to be uh, when, when what the human author has intended gets neglected so that the, the preacher can just use the text like a launch pad to get him where he himself wants to go, you know, so he can get into what he perceives as his wheelhouse. And I'll just remind you of what I'm talking about with a really uh, stereotypical example. Uh, if the sermon is on Revelation 9, uh, I don't want to hear the, the locust interpreted as Black Hawk helicopters, right? That's not, that's not good preaching. That's, that's not what we're, what we're looking for. Uh, but but when, since Christ tells us that all scripture ultimately points to him, you can always ask how uh, a given text fits in God's grand plan to redeem a people for himself. But if we're going to take a text and legitimately move it from where it's situated in the canon of scripture and interpret it in such a way that we're explicitly reading years and centuries and whole eras of redemptive history into it, we need warrant. We need warrant. You need good evidence that the author intended you to understand it that way. Evidence to suggest that even as he penned it, the Spirit of Christ at work in him was indicating that his message was chiefly about the glories that are yet to come. So as we turn to Psalm 110 tonight, let's see if we have that warrant. Verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Get your magnifying glasses out and look at this. Those are two different words. We're talking about two different persons. You have the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, and my Lord, capital L, minuscule O-R-D. 
Adonai. Two different words, two different persons, which is interesting. Very interesting. If only God would take up flesh and come and dwell among us and tell us exactly what that means. Uh, Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 2, the Pharisees have just lost another round of let's see if we can stump Jesus. And then the Sadducees have just lost another round of let's see if we can stump Jesus. And then Jesus has just given uh, the greatest commandment. And then that takes us to verse 41, where we read this. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. What do we learn about Psalm 110 from Jesus' comments? Well, number one, we learn, or maybe more precisely, we're reminded that the Messiah is David's son. And number two, we learn that it was undisputed that the one whom David calls Lord in Psalm 110 is indeed the Messiah. But because they weren't able to answer Jesus' question. When Jesus asked, how is it that the Messiah is David's son and David's Lord, the Pharisees can see that he's asking a valid question. The one whom David calls Lord is also his son who will sit on the throne forever. The Messiah will come from his line, but the Messiah is superior to him. The Messiah will come from his line, but apparently the Messiah existed before him because in David's day, he's able to write, the Lord said to my Lord. Jesus asked how that works. And the Pharisees can't answer him. You see, they didn't have a paradigm for a Christ who happened to be God. Turns out they needed one. Because when Jesus asked how the Messiah can be David's son and Lord at the same time, the answer is bound up in two truths. Number one, we're talking about the one who is the son of David of our physical descent. Number two, we're talking about the one who looked the Jews in the face and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So we made it six words into this psalm and we've already blown the lid off of it. The whole thing is about Jesus. Commentator uh, Joseph Alexander, he says of Psalm 110, this is the counterpart of the second psalm. Completing the prophetic picture of the conquering Messiah, any other application is ridiculous. I concur. And, And since I have no desire to be ridiculous in this context, I will now proceed to preach it as such. Uh, I I agree with uh, Derek Kidner on the basic outline of this psalm. Uh, Verse 1 is independent. Verses 2 and 3 unpack that verse. Verse 4 is another independent truth. And then verses 5 through 7 double back around to extend verse 1. All that to say, let's look at the six verses that stem from verse 1 and we'll save verse 4 for last. We're going to do that under two headings tonight. Uh, So the first heading that we'll spend most of our time under is the king coming to judge. The king coming to judge. Look back with me again at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, 
or Yahweh says to Adonai, or God says to his Christ, or the Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. As it's expected to be in the Psalms, Psalm 110 is full of imagery. The first image we see here is Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. That image is meant to symbolize a, a quiet repose. Jesus had entered his rest even while he waits. If you're looking for a, a timeline uh, right now, at this moment, you and I are somewhere smack dab in the middle of what we see in verse 1. Christ Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the day when all things will indeed be fully and finally subjected to him. That's uh, that, that he's seated is a picture of his majesty. That he's seated is a picture of his authority. Jesus, the coming judge. And that he's at the right hand of the Father is an emblem of strength. You can think of the right hand as the hand from which blessings fall. You, you can think of the right hand as the hand from which gifts are bestowed. To be at the right hand of God is a place of infinite enjoyment. A post of the utmost honor. Uh, W.S. Plummer writes, To a higher degree of rest, rule, joy, favor, power, and majesty, Christ could not be raised. And, and brothers and sisters, uh, as the one by whom all things were created, as the one for whom all things were created, as the one in whom all things hold together, as the one who is the head of the church, as the one who is the beginning, as the one who is the firstborn from the dead, as the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, as the one who has made peace by the blood of his cross, I think he's right where he should be. And, and as he's there, he's waiting waiting for the fullness of his enemies to become his footrest. And you don't need to be a Bible scholar to understand what that means. We're talking about complete subjection. Every rebellion squashed, every instigator put down. The imagery reminds us of the scene in Joshua chapter 10. Over in Joshua chapter 10, we see a portion of the conquest of the promised land. Joshua leading the army of Israel into battle against the coalition of the Amorites. The Lord fights for Israel. The battle is finished and God's people win. And then when the battle is over, Joshua decides it's time to deal with the five kings of the Amorites who have fled. So beginning in verse 24, we read this. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua... Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Joshua chapter 10 gives us a glimpse into what's being communicated in Psalm 110. Because as Joshua leads God's people into the earthly promised land, God has so subjected his enemies to him that he was able to put his feet upon their necks. And in Psalm 110, we have this promise that there is a day coming when the true and better Joshua will usher his people into the city that is to come and every opponent of the kingdom of God will find themselves as footrest for Jesus, the king coming to judge. 
Verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Brothers and sisters, the king's reign respects no boundaries. What what Whit preached last month in Psalm chapter 2 is true. The Lord has established his king on Zion. But we see this evening that the king's reign is not limited to that holy hill. His mighty scepter goes forth. His rule and his reign advances. And you and I are living proof. The king's reign has already broken into this present evil age. And so here we sit on a Wednesday night at Park Baptist Church, this little gospel outpost that stands as an embassy to the lost and dying world around us and beckons us to come and take the water of life without price. That's our plea to those outside. Friends, his scepter has gone out. He's ruling now in the very midst of his enemies, even as he waits the day when his opponents will have their opposition ended once and for all. Verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Your people, the king's people, will offer themselves freely, willingly, on the day of his power. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Okay, so something just happened there. We went from talking about Christ's enemies in verse 2 to talking about his people in verse 3. So we see that he has enemies who are going to be subjected, and he has his people who are already willing subjects. And this phrase about the dew of the morning here at the end of that verse, in verse 3, it seems to be a reference to just how plentiful these willing subjects are. Now, every one of us has been in the enemy camp at one point in time. And it's quite possible, as we're here tonight, that there are some here who are still in that enemy camp right now. Because you and I are born in to the enemy camp. And as soon as we're able to, we swear our allegiance to the enemy camp by our actions. But then there's this group over in verse 3 who become willing subjects. Where did that willingness to be subjected to the king come from? Well, the ultimate answer we know is by the power of God through the work of his spirit. But the most immediate answer is through the gift of eyes that can see the king's power. There's a recognition that this day of power is coming and that no rebels will be left standing. And that leads those who have eyes to see the king's omnipotence to seek peace with him. It leads them to turn from their sin and take up holy garments, to set their hope in the king and renounce the temptations of this world. Oh, friend, if you perceive that you're still wandering around in the enemy camp tonight, I I beg you to seek peace with the king now. Ask him for eyes to see his power. Ask him for the willingness to run to him right now. And friend, I must warn you, this isn't something to play around with because the king's judgment, as we see it in this psalm, it only gets more severe. Verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. So so we're right back to the same mental picture. Again, I think verse 5 is doubling back to verse 1. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. 
I think everything right there in verses 5 and 6 is driving at one truth. When the king comes to judge, it won't matter who you are. Shatter the kings, shatter the chiefs, fill the nations with corpses. Verse 7 signifies that when the kings come to judge, he won't tire. You will not be able to outlast him. He'll refresh himself from the brook as he goes out conquering and to conquer, and he will lift up his head. He will be victorious. He will triumph over his enemies. There's no amount of power or wealth or prestige or reputation or popularity that will or ever could protect you from the king on that day. You can turn from your sin and be his willing subject now, or you will be his footstool then. The way that this psalm frames it, the better option is obvious. I doubt anyone would constantly want to be a footstool. But if we push just a little bit deeper, I wonder what our lives and our hearts actually show about where we placed our hope. First uh, Peter Chapter 1, verse 13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the Christian life. Hope fully set on the grace that we will receive on the day when Christ comes again. We're to be a future-oriented people, an eternity-focused people, a people dead set on the city that has foundations. Is that you? Is that you? Uh, yesterday we spent the day at the, uh, at the South Carolina Baptist Convention meeting. It's a, it's a gathering of messengers from churches all over the state uh, to discuss, make decisions about Baptist life in South Carolina. And there was this really interesting phenomena that occurred. Several people noted it. Uh, but around lunchtime, the whole room was filled with people who were notably zoned out, Uh, People with their mindset on lunch, people trying to figure out where the next cup of coffee was going to come from, uh, and I was legitimately working on my outline for the sermon, uh, when all of the sudden, uh, a a notable political figure walked in, and everything changed. Uh, People sat up in their chairs, people put down their phones, people locked in, people gave standing ovations, and... There's nothing, there's nothing overtly wrong with that. There's nothing explicitly evil going on there. This particular political figure seems to be a pretty fair one in my estimation, ally of the faith. But I think that reality should caution us in our hearts just a little bit. Where is our hope actually aimed? Because it seems in a room full of people who have eyes to see the omnipotence of King Jesus, who who fled to him for refuge as his willing subjects, who've set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us on the day when he returns, it seems that the type of people who would get our attention would be the guys in the room who are faithful gospel heralds. The guys in the room who are faithfully stewarding their talents and gifts to serve the local church. The women in the room who are hard at work discipling women. The women in the room who are on the front lines of raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, let's check our hearts. Where's our hope at? Where is our full hope at? I told you we'd make it back to verse 4, and and here we are. Let's look at verse 4 under the heading, The priest who came to save. So we've got the king who came to judge, and the priest who came to save. To say. Verse 4. 
The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'd remind you briefly of two aspects of the office of priest. Uh, in the Old Testament, we see priests handling sacrifices, right? Dealing with sin. Uh, we also see priests interceding for God's people on their behalf. And, and just those two offices, it's fairly easy to see how that applies to Jesus, right? He deals with sin in his body on the tree. He himself is the sacrifice. He himself intercedes for us and is at the right hand of God, interceding for all of us who are in him right now. I would remind you briefly of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a somewhat mysterious, shadowy figure in Genesis 14. He's very unique in the sense that the Bible tells us he's the king of Salem and he's a priest. The offices of king and priest were separated after the fall. So this, this isn't normal. Melchizedek is also unique in the sense that Abraham the one from whom the Levitical priesthood will descend, he gives tithes to him. Which the author of Hebrews in chapter 7 points out as a dead giveaway that the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the Levitical priesthood. All right, so what's the point? Why is verse 4 in Psalm 110? The point, brothers and sisters, is that we have a priest we have a priest. The point is to demonstrate, even in the midst of an oracle of God's coming judgment, that all who willfully submit to the king have a sacrifice for our sin. And God doesn't just forgive us. He's just to forgive us. And we have one, even right now, who's at the right hand of God interceding for us. The king who's coming to judge is himself the priest who came to save. And maybe as you've sat here tonight, you've thought, man, the king coming to judge is intense. And I want to say to you, yes, he is. But Jesus, the saving priest, is, is intense too. The, the fact that he's the king coming to judge and the priest who came to save means that he's the priest of a better covenant. Like Melchizedek, his priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. His priesthood doesn't serve a covenant built on the blood of bulls. His priesthood is built on his own blood and is emphatically validated by his own empty tomb. Amen. Let me tell you what that means for you. From Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friends, the wrath of the judging king is coming, but you can take heart because this judging king is a saving priest. Is he your priest? Is he your priest? The, the priest doesn't save the enemies. The priest saves his people. The priest saves those who have their hope in him. The priest saves those who can say with John, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the reminder tonight from your word, Lord, that 
You're the king who is coming to judge, and you are the king who came to save. Lord, may all of us who are in Christ have our hearts encouraged by this truth and be reminded of the gospel once again. Lord, if there are any here who do not know you, Lord, I pray that they would seek refuge in you and in you alone, because you only are the one who can save to the uttermost. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.